Hello, I'm Mary Osborne. I'm Kathy Shagrin. And I'm Stacia Matten. And we'd like to welcome you back for a second season of Prairie Tales, where each month we talk about this wonderful community we live in, Monmouth, Illinois. Mary, did you know that the city of Monmouth is the birthplace of fraternity Kappa Kappa Gamma? Well, yes, I did. Well, did you know that their mascot is an owl and the Lord Lee is their symbol? Yes, I was aware. Did you know that the fraternity began as a desire by several local women in Monmouth to develop a women's fraternity for social development and now has 145 collegiate chapters? How do you know so much about Kappa Kappa Gamma? Well, well you know, I read it on I read internet. It on internet. Oh, moving on. Each month at Prairie Tales, we bring you a little slice of history from Monmouth's past with the help of local historians. Last year, we heard from many of you who listen, and we welcome your ideas for future programs. We also would like to recognize the Buchanan Center for the Arts, which sponsors our program as part of its mission to promote the arts in whatever form it takes in the Monmouth area. So, are we ready to begin? Absolutely. Well, get ready because it's season two of Prairie Tales. Hello, Prairie Tales fans. This episode concludes our tale of the Oregon Trail with guest podcaster Tom Best. The last time we were together for Prairie Tales, you learned of the quest of a group of Warren County families in the 1850s to begin new lives in the American West, specifically Oregon. You heard of the origins of these trips as related to the families such as the Davidsons, Murphys, and the Butlers. Most of them were tied to the Disciples of Christ Church and a dream to obtain more lands, new opportunities, and the chance to start a Christian college for both their sons and daughters. Likewise, you also began to experience the trip by way of accounts furnished by other Warren County immigrants, principally those traveling in 1853. As they were often in the same vicinity as the Butler Party, led by Peter and Ira Butler, their tales are additionally instructive of the larger history of Western expansion. We left off last time with the 1853 party beginning their crossing of the Great Plains beyond the Missouri River. The tragic story of the drowning of ex-Warren County Sheriff Samuel Leeper in the Elkhorn River in eastern Nebraska illustrated the challenge of crossing this formidable landscape. Traveling now in constant dust along the Platte River, a waterway called too thin to plow and too thin to drink, the Illinois travelers soon reached some of the more picturesque natural features on the Great Plains. One memorable incident is found again in the writing of 16-year-old Marjorie Ann Pollock from Little York. Plodding along in the region of the Lakota, or Sioux Indians, and sites such as the majestic Chimney Rock, Courthouse Rock, and Scott's Bluff, Marjorie later wrote in a style typical of this era, quote, I think it was part of the western part of Nebraska that the Sioux Indians got on the warpath with another tribe, and we thought best not to travel alone. So we sent back word and waited until we got a hundred or more teams into line with two herds of cattle between and started on our way. Sure enough, that very afternoon we met the Indians with their old men, squaws, and children, taking them to a safe place, and right after came the warriors by the hundreds. They were all painted up in their war collars and their headdresses were of brilliantly colored feathers, while the rings on their nose and ears glittered in the sunshine. They hooped and yelled like demons and brandished their bows and arrows, their hatchets and guns, as they rode up and down our line, stopping frequently to peep into our wagons and buggies. Martha and I were in one wagon, and the young braves would ride up and say, 
pretty squaw, and laugh and then they would go away. We just sat there, scarcely daring to breathe. About halfway on their journey, another troubling incident occurred as the Butler party approached the military installation at Fort Laramie in eastern Wyoming. Edward Ground, a fellow Warren County traveler, lost three of his best mares worth an extravagant $3,000. While camped on the other side of the Laramie River, laborer George West later revealed this tale. Some of our party saddled horses and took off on the trail, followed it all night and part of the next day, but returned empty-handed. It, in all probability, was the work of white men disguised as Indians, for there were three of them, and each had lassoed a mare and left on the dead run. This we learned from the trail they left. Such outlaws were thus named white Indians. Thomas Hutchinson later noted in his letter, written east of the South Pass, that ground had followed the trail of the horse thieves some 40 miles before giving up the chase for a lack of provisions. Continuing on toward the Rocky Mountains, they passed Register Cliff, where travelers often carved their names and dates of visit on the soft rock. Near this site, teenager Marjorie Ann Pollock remembered, after dinner, some of us braver ones started to the top by winding around and creeping over vines and stepping over crevices that we couldn't see the bottom of. We finally reached the top. How we wished for a telescope, but we could see a good many miles as it was. It was more dangerous coming down than up, but we made it before dark. It was almost bare rock with a few shrubs and flowers in the niches wherever a little dirt found lodgment. Some of the boys took their guns, waded the river, and went after some wild game. They thought it less than a mile to the mountains, but it was nearer four, and they were so exhausted when they climbed the first bench and saw it was several miles away. The air was so clear that you couldn't measure distance with the eye. While the young people were exploring, mother and the smaller children rested at the tent, and father watched the horses and cattle to keep them from straying off and getting into the hands of the Indians. Venturing on, they rested briefly at Independence Rock, before soon traveling through South Pass, a 29-mile-wide gap in the Wind River Range of the Rockies at an altitude of 7,400 feet. In the company of some 300 wagons traveling a good 25 miles a day, the Butler party now looked west toward more fearsome obstacles from the western side of the Rockies to the Snake River Valley. Past Fort Bridger, they were into the area of modern Idaho. It was in this region that George West contracted what was then referred to as mountain fever, perhaps some mixture of a virus and high-altitude sickness. As he described this episode, after leaving the Green River, our route was in mountainous and timbered country. I was sick with mountain fever for several days. Unconscious for three days, when I came to my senses, I heard a fiddle and saw parties dancing around a campfire. We were on Bear Creek. Our camp joined another train for one night, and this and another train. Having several young ladies and a fiddler, it was supposed to have a dance. When I made my appearance among the dancers, I did not know I had been sick. Hawkins took me to our wagon and gave me some grub and told me I had not eaten for three days. Peter and Edward Ground also suffered in this area as well in 1853 as they lost more of their livestock. Peter wrote back to his remaining relatives in late August stating, My best mule got drowned at the same time and place. Our loose horses and mules were driven until they got very dry and when they got down to the river, about 14 of them rushed into the river just above the falls the hindmost pressing on those before, and in an instant they were all swimming. The water was very swift, which soon forced them over the falls. 
My mule and Edward Ground's mare were both forced over a large rock. I believe Edward's mare sunk immediately. My mule sunk and rose frequently till it got below the breakers. It then swam about a minute and sunk. Soon they entered eastern Oregon and the final leg of their trek. However, their frustrations and concerns were not yet over, as they were now traversing a landscape cursed by many a pioneer party for its incredibly harsh environment. Specifically, they were following the zigzagging Burnt River through many a steep and rugged canyon. This region, often reached by the travelers in the worst heat of August, was well known for producing exhausted and dead livestock, broken wagons, and many a tear shed for an injured or dead companion. They eventually climbed out of this hellish climate and geography into the cooler and more scenic Blue Mountains and eventually into the picturesque Columbia River Valley. While some travelers chose to lash their wagons on rafts and float them down the river, the Warren County Party chose to keep their wagons dry and stayed on a new dirt trail, the Barlow Road. This toll road took them into the shadow of the 11,000-foot-tall snow-capped Mount Hood, where for $5 a wagon, one can travel on a seemingly safer passage through the Cascade Mountains. But one last obstacle faced them as they came down the mountain pass of Laurel Hill, a rock-strewn decline littered with the debris of many an overturned wagon. The only reasonable way down was to repeat the technique they had learned in the Blue Mountains, slowly winching a wagon down with a rope wrapped around a tree. Now, before I go on, do you remember Part 1's introduction to the Hutchinson family? Do you recall that Elizabeth had left Monmouth pregnant? As with other women on the 1850 and 1852 trips, as well as likely with 20% of all married women on the Oregon Trail, it was certain that she would give birth on the trail. But where? Yes, it would be here on the dangerous downward stretch of Laurel Hill. With Elizabeth somehow anchored, and with someone to aid her, they eased hers and her husband's Thomas's wagon down an 80-yard path, reaching a 60-degree angle, and along this treacherous decline nicknamed the Chute. As George West would later state, we were at the foot and to the south of Mount Hood, its snow-white cap towering far in the clouds. From Summit Prairie, we soon commenced the descent of the mountain over the most difficult and dangerous road that we had encountered. Our route led down to a small, swift-running stream called Zigzag or Sandy. The road was fearful, and at one place we had to let the wagons down a shelving rock by tying the rope to the rear ends and snubbing the rope around a tree. Several trees from 12 to 14 inches had been cut in this manner until finally broken off by the wind or snow. I held one rope and snubbed it around a large tree some two feet in diameter. It had a groove burned around it some four or five inches. The captain rode to the head of the train and ordered to turn out and camp at the first place available. We soon found a suitable place and camped as another was added to our number. Mrs. Hutchinson had a fine boy we named Sandy. When they soon arrived in Polk County, the proud grandfather, Peter Butler, also rode to the berth on August 3rd. Elizabeth had a fine son on the Cascade Mountains, and although we had to haul her over 10,000 rocks, which would have thought a wagon unable to stand, she and the babe are all doing well. However, a correction has to be made at this point. With the baby born not far from the Sandy River, it was assumed that this would be his first name, Sandy. Instead, the baby boy was partly named for the Cascade Mountain Range, 
where Elizabeth's labor was combined with the physical task of lowering her down Laurel Hill. He was hence known as Robert Cascade Hutchinson. Such drama now eased, the Butler party soon crossed into their future home in the Willamette River Valley in Polk County, Oregon, with the earlier settled Warren County residents. Their 1853 trip, made in about 130 days, averaged a respectable 17 to 18 miles for each day of travel. Elizabeth Butler Ground wrote of the trip in not her best English. We all arrived in Oregon safe and sound. We was somewhat tried, but are getting a little rested. We are all well and hearty. The trip was tolerably tiresome, but not as much as I expected to find it. Peter Butler's first letters back home went to Ivory Quinby, his lawyer, who Peter hoped could arrange for an insurance settlement on the goods he lost with the sinking of the riverboat Kansas on its way to Council Bluffs. The letters of other Butler relatives, such as Isaac Smith and Thomas and Elizabeth Hutchinson, would illustrate their perspective of the trip. They wrote in terms of the little sickness they experienced, how their wagons and teams had held up quite remarkably for the long, hard trip, how elderly Peter had managed to drive their buggy the whole way, how expensive the trip had been, as Peter claimed poverty to his son John back in Warren County, and how Peter's wife Rachel was very homesick, calling her the worst whip woman you ever saw. New mother Elizabeth Hutchinson summarized her sometimes harsh impressions when she wrote the next spring of 1854. It is a little more than a year since we left home and started on an almost endless journey to this great land of redskins and wildcat. But luckily, we all reached in safety, as you have long since heard, no doubt. This great journey with its numerous inconveniences and dangers take man and beast through material change, yea, and even women. It seems to arouse and set to work all the selfish and beastly passions, a natural consequence when all restrictions are taken over them. That said, what was to become of their lives? They created farmsteads in a town that became Monmouth, Oregon. Soon the earliest residents could shop and have their needs met at three dry goods stores, two blacksmith shops, along with a grocery, drug store, saddle and harness shop, a cooper shop, and a lone tavern. Now, how long that tavern stayed open as part of the community is questionable as this religious settlement soon voted the town to be dry, thus banning the sale of alcohol. This is interesting because that decision remained steadfast all the way into the last years of the 1900s. In 1859, with the assistance of Ira Butler, the city was soon incorporated. Ira, who also suggested the name for the town, became one of the community's most well-known civic leaders, serving as their county judge, a leading member of the Democratic Party, and soon one of the early members of the Oregon House of Representatives. From 1857 to 1859, he was also the highly respected speaker of that legislative body. Land purchased in the vicinity would be sold to provide the financial foundation for what later became Monmouth University. Their initial trustees, administrators, faculty, and students who fostered the growth of this pioneering institution for co-educational studies were largely the same folks had early braved their trek from Warren County. For instance, baby Robert Cascade Hutchinson, born on Laurel Hill, attended and graduated from what they called this Christian college. The college's remaining remnants on the present-day campus of Western Oregon State University 
are the stately Campbell Hall and a 125-foot sequoia tree, which is lit every holiday season and is still regarded as the largest outdoor Christmas tree in our nation. In future years, the settlers started more farms, in which Polk County became the hop-growing capital of the world. Businesses opened to utilize the area's rich clay in order to manufacture tile for farm drainage. As well, missionaries, educators, entrepreneurs in the lumber business, and accomplished photographers emerged from this area. Given such success, you might be surprised that some residents came back to the Midwest. One of them was George West, the young man Ira Butler hired to help them make the trip west. After first trying his hand at carpentry, hunting, mining up and down the Oregon and California coast, fighting Indians, and getting rich and going broke several times, he returned to Warren County during the height of the Civil War. Later, West made his way to western Iowa at Red Oak, where in the 1880s he started the Iowa Aerial Navigation Company. A man of vision, he drew up plans for an airship looking much like a modern blimp. As West said at the end of his memoirs, mine has been an eventful life. Well, that concludes our story. I trust that you'll agree that the story of the Oregon Trail families from Warren County is an intriguing one. Perhaps one day, you too could find your way traveling to see these same ruts, river crossings, and scenery they experienced in the 1850s. You might even find yourself traveling down the streets of Monmouth, Oregon, and encountering the legacy of their efforts from almost 200 years ago. And that, friends, is where this tale ends. Prairie Tales is a production of the Buchanan Center for the Arts in Monmouth, Illinois. If you enjoyed our podcast, look for more content on Instagram at Buchanan Center and on Facebook at BCA Monmouth. Email us with questions and suggestions for future episodes at prairietalespodcast at gmail.com. Remember, not all history is found in a book. Sometimes it's found in the stories we tell. Just listen to the sound of the prairie and you too might hear a tale.